New amendments to the U.S. Federal Rules of Civil Procedure took effect on December 1, 2015, and these amendments impact several areas of patent litigation. In part two of this series on civil procedure, Finnegan partners Jeff Totten and Jason Stack discuss challenges to Rule 37E, which imposes new sanctions for the loss of electronically stored information. Jeff, can you provide a brief overview of Rule 37E and the changes that have taken place? The rule as it existed before the changes took effect on December 1st offered a safe harbor for parties facing potential litigation, saying that absent what the rule called exceptional circumstances, a court was not to impose sanctions for the loss of electronically stored information due to the routine good faith operation of an electronic information system. So the routine operation of one's email system, for example, was not to lead to sanctions under the old rule. That has been completely taken out of the rule and rewritten. The new rule instead states what a court can do when ESI has gone missing and cannot be restored or replaced through additional discovery. Um, The new rule has two sections. The first, Rule 37E1, addresses information that has been lost by a party and cannot be replaced. And the second section, Rule 37E2, offers more severe penalties for the intentional destruction of information. So the rule sets up this two-step process for looking at information that cannot be restored. Jason, what triggers a preservation of electronically stored information, and when do practitioners have an obligation to preserve this ESI? Well, the amended federal rules of civil procedure do not address what triggers an obligation to preserve documents, including ESI. They address potential sanctions when a court has found that a party did not properly preserve their ESI, but the obligation to preserve remains governed by other sources of law. So as the advisory committee to the rules stated, they said many court decisions hold that potential litigants have a duty to preserve relevant information when litigation is reasonably foreseeable. Rule 37E is based on this common law duty. It does not attempt to create a new duty to preserve, end quote. So because courts differ on what triggers the obligation to preserve, practitioners will need to look to the law of the jurisdiction in which they are litigating to determine when the obligation begins. The advisory committee also offered a cautionary note to courts applying the newly amended Rule 37, though. They stated that in applying the rule, a court may need to decide whether and when a duty to preserve arose. Courts should consider the extent to which a party was on notice that litigation was likely and that the information would be relevant. A variety of events may alert a party to the prospect of litigation. Often these events provide only limited information about that prospective litigation, however, so the scope of information that should be preserved may remain uncertain. It is important not to be blinded by this reality by hindsight arising from familiarity with an action as it is actually filed. So at least in the eyes of the advisory committee, courts need to be cautious when they're analyzing these duties to preserve, and they need to avoid looking at the facts with hindsight. Jeff, what does this change mean for practitioners when preserving ESI in anticipation of litigation? When a party anticipates litigation, the new rule calls on them to take reasonable steps to preserve information that should be preserved And as Jason just alluded to, the decisions in the courts will determine what should be or should not be held by companies as the case moves forward. But there are three steps that parties may want to consider when they begin to anticipate litigation. First, they should take some reasonable steps to identify and preserve information that could potentially be prejudicial to their opponent if it is lost or not preserved. 
In doing this, they also want to consider what types of information should be preserved for the purposes of the litigation, what information might be useful, for example. Second, the potential litigants should provide instructions to their employees to prevent any misguided attempts to destroy information to avoid its discovery. Third, they might want to consider documenting the steps done to preserve electronic information, as well as advice from attorneys or technical experts, if any, involved in deciding what to preserve in anticipation of litigation. For example, if a party should decide that saving certain information would be too expensive or otherwise unreasonable under the circumstances, it may want to be able to explain that decision down the road and to refer to contemporaneous documentation of the decision and what went into that decision. That might be helpful for a court or other parties involved in the litigation down the road. I would note also that many parties already engage in this type of analysis and have engaged in this type of analysis before the rule change. And for those parties, we don't expect much of a change to their current procedures when litigation is anticipated. Rather, it would seem that they would take the same reasonable steps that they have been taking in the past. Jason, does Rule 37E provide any guidance on how courts should treat negligence versus intent when it comes to the loss of ESI? Yes, it does. The rule distinguishes between negligence and intent. Rule 37E1 states that the court, upon a finding of prejudice to another party from loss of the information, may order measures no greater than necessary to cure the prejudice. So this would encompass all losses, whether through negligence or through bad faith, where there might have been an intent to destroy some information specifically targeted to a litigation. Rule 37E2 is a separate provision that is limited to instances of bad faith, and it states that the court, only upon finding that the party acted with an intent to deprive another party of the information's use in litigation, may enter some specific sanctions. And those sanctions are listed in the rule now, and they say that the court can enter a sanction that presumes that the lost information was unfavorable to the party. They can instruct the jury that it may or must presume the information was unfavorable to a party, or it can dismiss the action altogether or enter a default judgment. So there are much stronger penalties when bad faith is found. The advisory committee suggests that unless there's bad faith, the court cannot or should not at least enter sanctions that rise to the level of what's specified in 37E2 if there's not a showing of bad faith. And they were resolving a conflict where some circuits actually found that in circumstances of negligence or gross negligence, some of these harsher sanctions have been applied, and they wanted to provide some more national uniformity and essentially overrule those by rule and say that those sanctions are actually reserved for those times when there's been bad faith intent. That's some guidance that the advisory committee has offered, and we'll have to see how courts end up implementing that in practice. Finally, and this is for both of you, Jason, we'll start with you here. What are some best practices for practitioners to keep in mind with these new rule changes? Rule 37E requires that a party take reasonable steps to preserve their electronically stored information, or ESI. The first step is to ensure that the ESI is actually part of any litigation hold that a party may issue. Oftentimes, parties will issue those holds at the beginning of litigation or when they're anticipating the litigation, and it's just important to make sure that you don't overlook the electronically stored information. That's been on people's radar for quite some time now, so that's usually not an issue. But then the next step is to ensure that any preservation measures that you specify in the litigation hold are reasonable under the circumstances, because there can be a wide variation in what's considered reasonable under different factual circumstances, and the rule and the advisory committee notes offer very 
very little guidance on what would suffice in any given situation, litigants are going to need to look to other sources to figure out what might be reasonable. So they might want to look at case law in the jurisdiction where they're litigating, where they are looking at cases related to electronically stored information, and even perhaps looking beyond that just to other types of information and the duties to preserve there. But really, at a minimum, a party needs to be prepared to justify the reasonableness of its preservation efforts. And I liked a lot of what Jeff said in response to an earlier question about documenting that and some of the steps that he had identified. I think those would be considered best practices to help prove up the reasonableness if it ever becomes an issue later on. I would add that communication and speed can be important considerations for a company that's facing litigation or thinks it may be facing a litigation. The sooner employees understand litigation is possible, and the sooner they understand that they may need to preserve electronic information, the less likely it is that information important to the case will be lost. For many companies, the goal is to avoid the loss of the information in the first place because that takes you completely outside of Rule 37 and you don't have to worry about a sanction if you've acted in a timely manner to preserve the information that will be helpful for the case. Communicating these concepts soon after the litigation is anticipated will, in many instances, serve the company well. Our guests have been Jeff Totten and Jason Stack, partners at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.